This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Army is exploring how to insert software bills of material into contracts. Now, this move potentially puts the military service at the forefront of agencies looking to use SBOMs to secure their software supply chains. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And tell us more about this, Justin. What's the latest on the potential SBOM requirement? So the Army has put out a request for information on the SBOM concept from its acquisition directorate, and it actually has some draft contract language in there that it's asking for feedback on to see how they could actually put SBOMs into contract requirements. And for folks who aren't aware, SBOMs are a machine-readable inventory of software components and dependencies that make up a software product or service. And it's important for security purposes and just for understanding what's in your environment. And the Army says these unknown components and software could cause systems to perform in unexpected ways and create exposures to attack. And that's why they're exploring the concept further. Young Bing is a principal deputy assistant secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology. He spoke at a recent Army conference. The Army is going to go headfirst into SBOMs. We encourage organizations and industry to come and talk to us about that. Some of you might have concerns on it. That's great. We want to hear those concerns. Come and talk to us specifically about it, but it's going to happen. We're going to do it, and the Army is going to be the first agency that's going to implement this correctly. And we should point out that SBOMs are called out in the Biden administration executive order on cybersecurity from a year ago last May. So SBOMs are kind of the term of art these days on what to do next. And this does put the Army out in front of pretty much everybody. Justin. Yeah, we haven't really seen another agency come out and say that they are going to put these into contract requirements yet. There's a lot of agencies talking about it. As you pointed out, it was in that cybersecurity executive order. It's also in subsequent uh, Office of Management and Budget software security guidance. It encourages agencies to use SBOMs or allows them to, but it does not require that they use SBOMs in their contracts. And, you know, right now it's kind of on the leading edge of what you can do. One thing you can do in, in terms of software security, it's been a concept that's been under development since at least 2018 when the Department of Commerce started coalescing kind of government and industry efforts to come up with standard terms and things like that. But it's not in wide use today. There was a a Gartner report earlier this year that says only about 5% of organizations are actually using SBOMs when they're purchasing mission-critical software. So it's kind of the next thing. And what you're seeing here is the Army come out and, and be pretty bullish about putting it into their contracts here. Right. So they would get these SBOMs via the contract. And as you mentioned, it's a big list in a machine-readable form. I think there's hundreds, sometimes thousands of elements on them. So did the Army say how it would actually be able to make use of this information? Yeah, they did. Jennifer Swanson is Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Data Engineering and Software. It's a relatively new position for the Army. And she talked about how SBOMs are kind of one tool as part of this broader software supply chain security initiative that the Army wants to get after here. And they, they really want to understand whether you know certain code may have been developed in China. Of course, the Army is a little bit more sensitive to that than perhaps other organizations. Just They just want to know where code is being developed, whether it's being outsourced to countries that maybe don't want them in the Army's code. And Swanson spoke a little bit more about where they want to go with SBOMs at the Army conference as well. Our nirvana for cybersecurity of software and the whole kind of SBOM concept is to have a repository of 
code, whether it's COTS or GOTS or whatever, that's already been through the scans, and that's where vendors pull from to develop code. That is a heavy lift. I mean, based on where we are today, it's going to take a little bit of time, but that is really where we want to go so that we can verify the software ourselves before it makes it into our code. And did she say what the next steps would be then? Well, the Army's RFI includes that draft contract language that I mentioned. It also includes multiple questions for industry and others to respond to on best practices around using SBOMs, what are the best standards, and so forth. The Army will have to take the responses from that RFI and figure out how to incorporate SBOMs, a relatively new concept, into a somewhat old and notoriously cumbersome acquisition process. Megan Dake is Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Procurement. She also spoke about SBOMs. We have to train our technical and our, our contracting folks about what that means, because that's something new. You know, we know what bombs are, right? But SBOMs is a whole other world. So you're going to see those in future requirements and what those mean. How do we evaluate those in our source selections? And um, how do we write those into our RFPs? So they've got some homework to do. Essentially, but it, it certainly is a, an aggressive step here for the Army to come out from its acquisition directorate and start to talk about SBOM contract language here. Yeah, it's a little bit like one of those chef shows where they dump a bunch of ingredients on the table in front of these would-be chefs, and you've got to whip up something out of them. That's kind of what an SBOM seems like, a big list of stuff. And so what? Because understanding the dependencies and what's really in there and the sources takes a program and a real, I guess, sense of expertise and probably some tool work to be able to figure out what the SBOM is telling you. That's right. It's it's certainly not enough to just get an SBOM. I think a lot of uh, folks recognize that today. The Cyber Safety Review Board did a uh, from the Department of Homeland Security did a big report on the Log4j open source software vulnerability that popped up late last year that really sent security teams scrambling through the holidays. And there's been a lot of discussion around whether if SBOMs were more widely used, that maybe folks could have found Log4j in their environments easier. Interestingly enough, the uh, review board found that of any of the software organizations that use SBOMs today, none of them actually use those lists to go and find Log4j, suggesting that additional standardization and tooling is needed to drive this forward. Well, you can't eat flour and oil. You've got to make bread. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. 
Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took... Um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question one I don't think I still am reflecting on it. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, 
I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so while sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I 
had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Apply a little splash when your windshield's getting dirty. Just apply a little splash when your windshield's full of grime, bugs, dirt, and snow. Just use a little splash and be safe on the road. Splash, splash, splash. Apply a little splash when your windshield's getting dirty. Just apply a little splash. See safely on the road when you apply a little splash.